My name is Tim Harris, pastor here at Woodburn Baptist Church. The message series is called The Sinner in the Mirror, See Yourself. And I pray that you can learn to see yourself, especially in the mirror of God's word. Welcome to those of you at the Franklin campus. We love you so much. Pastor Eric, we love you. Uh, open your Bibles, please, first to the book of James. I'm going to do a little bit of a scripture mashup here to begin. We're going to end up in the book of Genesis, but start with me in the book of James. If you have a Bible, open it, please. I know that the scripture's on the screen, but you need to read your Bible. And I take out a pen, underline these verses, because these are critical and, and, and good for you. First in the book of James. I'm going to talk about temptation. Let me first give credit where credit is due. Some of the big ideas of this sermon come from a sermon preached by Andy Stanley. He's pastor of a multi-site church outside of Atlanta, North Point Church and Buckhead Church. He's a great, great man of God. Some of the brighter moments from the sermon probably come from him. All of the dim moments come from me, though, so the sermon is still mine. Uh, Book of James, think about temptation. This is a critical verse about understanding how sin and temptation operate in your life. So underline this and think about what it says. This is sort of fundamental for this morning. James chapter 1, verse 14. James 1, 14. Temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. Now stop and think. Temptations come from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. That's very, very profound and important for you to understand. Now, I know that when it comes to sin, we all like to think that the devil made us do it. We give the devil a whole lot of credit, which he does not deserve. Understand that the devil is really actually not that powerful. He really is not able to make you do anything. And the way the book of James describes sin, please understand, the devil isn't even mentioned. In other words, you don't need the devil to sin. You can do this all by yourself, and you do. You don't need the devil. Sin begins, temptation begins with desires inside of you and inside of me. Those desires drag us away, entice us, lead us to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow in your life, it leads to death. Always, always consequences. Keep that verse in your mind. Now flip back with me to the book of Genesis. I'm sorry, the book of Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3, I want you to see this verse. Before we read the main story, I want you to get two sort of scenes in your mind from Scripture. First, Exodus chapter 3, this is Moses at the burning bush. Moses is going to be the deliverer of God's people, and God appears to Moses, speaks to Moses out of a burning bush. And when Moses wants to tell, when God wants to tell Moses who he is, who God is, notice what he says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And I want you to see that. The God of Jacob. Now, do the same thing. Flip over to the book of Matthew chapter 1. I want you to see, see something else. Matthew 1, verse 2. This is the genealogy. I know we tend to think they're not interesting, but this is important. The genealogy of Christ, talking about where Christ comes from. The long, long line of God's blessing and God's provision for our salvation through human families. And notice again, Matthew chapter 1, verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of, say it, Jacob. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Now, the interesting thing about these moments is that if you look everywhere else, the names listed there are firstborn sons. 
firstborn sons. In the ancient world, spiritual benefits were always passed along through the firstborn son. But if you know anything about the Old Testament, Jacob is not the firstborn son. Who was Jacob's older brother? Esau. Esau. So when you look at those passages, you've got to start to wonder, what happened to Esau? One way or another, Esau lost his place. He lost his place. Let's take a look at the story now. Back to Genesis chapter 25, verse 19. Esau loses his place. It's a story about temptation. It begins with a bowl of stew. A bowl of stew. Genesis chapter 25, verse 19 is where we'll begin. Genesis 25, 19. Listen to the word of the Lord. This is the account of the family of Isaac, the son of Abraham. When Isaac was 40 years old, he married Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Paddan Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was unable to have children. The Lord answered Isaac's prayer, and Rebekah became pregnant with twins. Watch out what you pray for. But the two children struggled with each other in her womb. So she went to ask the Lord about it. Why is this happening to me, she asked. Lots of pregnant women have asked the same thing. And the Lord told her, the sons in your womb will become two nations. Now listen, the sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve the younger son. When the time came to give birth, Rebecca discovered that she did indeed have twins, The first one was, listen to this, this is awesome. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat. I'd love to see that baby picture. A red baby with fur. So they named him Esau. The name Esau means furry. Yeah, furry, fuzzy. Then the other twin was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel. Do you get that picture? These two babies are being born. They've been tangling up in mom's womb for nine months. And then suddenly Esau's getting that first. And what does Jacob do? He grabs his leg and pulls out. Yeah, that's how he rides out. He comes out hanging on to Esau's heel. So they named that child Jacob, which means heel grabber. Yeah, Rebecca and Isaac are great with the baby names there. Named him heel grabber. His name was Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when the twins were born. Good luck to him. As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman, but Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. He was an indoorsman. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home. But Rebekah loved Jacob. One day when Jacob was cooking some stew, listen. Esau arrived home from the wilderness exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starving. Give me some of that red stew. This is how Esau got his other name, Edom, which means red. His nickname was Red. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? But Jacob said, first you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, thereby selling all his rights as the firstborn to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. 
Esau ate the meal, then got up and left. He showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. I have a feeling that all the kids who went to high school with Jacob and Esau would probably say, I can't believe you guys are brothers. Can't believe you guys are brothers. Who could believe it? And it's not just brothers. They are fraternal twins, not identical. They're not identical at all. These guys are as different as two boys can be. Esau, it says, was born red and furry. Red and furry, that, that's amazing to me, a baby like that. When he was born, even his own mother thought he looked like an orangutan. Not kidding, not kidding, read, read the Bible. It's amazing. Two boys so absolutely, absolutely different. Even in Rebecca's womb, as she was carrying these babies, and remember, this is in the day before ultrasound, before she could possibly know anything about what's happening inside of her, but she knew something awful, something dramatic, something different was happening inside of her. And so she could not go to her OBGYN. Do you understand? The only person she could go to was God. The only one who could see inside her womb was the Lord. And so she went to God and said, why, why, what is happening to me? What is going on inside of me? And God told her somewhere around whatever, the second trimester, God said, listen, Rebecca, there is something wild going on inside of you. You have two babies, two boys inside of you. And they are going to be sibling rivals like no one has ever seen. These boys are rivals And each of your boys is going to become the father, the leader of a great nation. Both of your boys are going to lead nations. And those nations will be rivals forever. Interesting. And that's what happened. It came true. When the day came and she delivered babies, she had two babies as different as night and day. And these babies each became great. They both became fathers of great nations. As you know, Jacob became the father of the Israelites, God's people. Esau became the father of another great nation, a nation that we can call the Rednecks. Esau becomes the father of the rednecks. Not making this up, you read your Bible. His nickname was Red. They named him Red. And he was an outdoorsman. Esau was a good old boy, a gigantic ape of a man. Gigantic, red hair, bearded man. And that was in first grade. Do you understand? This kid was hairy and rough from the day he was born. The day he was born, red, rough, dumber than a sack of wet mice. That's Esau, father of all rednecks. Read your Bible. I'm not kidding. I'm not making any of this up. You've seen that truck in town, that truck that drives, and it drives really loud. And at the end of school, man, that truck's out of there really fast. You understand? You've seen that truck. It's got mud splattered. It's got a gun rack in the back. It's got those male parts hanging from the hitch. That's Esau's truck. That's Esau's truck. He's that guy. He's absolutely that guy. Not much in school. Just not much in school. He hated school. Even though it was against the rules to chew tobacco in school, Esau's the guy that sits in the back when the teacher's not looking, spits down the front of his own shirt. That's Esau. He's that guy. Father of all of those guys. 
And you would look at Esau and think, what is he ever going to amount to? How can this guy turn out to be anything? All he lives to do is hunt. All he wants to do is get out and kill something, drag it home. That's Esau. He's that guy. As different as you could be from his brother Jacob. Jacob likes to stay at home. If you look at Jacob's Facebook page, he's a fan of Glee and Paula Dean. That's Jacob. This is Jacob. He's mama's boy. He stays inside. He stays at home. Jacob's a little bit sneaky. You don't want to trust Jacob. Read your Bible. This is Jacob. And these are brothers. You would look and think, what in the world can God do with these two boys? One, the deceiver, the hill grabber. The other one, the hillbilly hunter. God, that's just rough and stupid. I mean, what can God do with these guys? You have no idea. And that's the important part of this story. You have no idea what God sees in these boys. What God sees in Esau. Esau has no idea what God sees in him. He's the firstborn, which means he has what they call the birthright. It's interesting, and it's a very important part of the, of the ancient world. Now, it's not all that it sounds. It is what it sounds, but it's, there's a little more to it. It is true that the firstborn son, the birthright, includes getting at least twice what the other siblings would get in the inheritance, the physical wealth of the father. The firstborn son is going to get at least twice, and sometimes three times, what the other siblings would receive. He's going to get the biggest portion of everything. But with that blessing, with that, with that incredible uh, gift of, of the money comes a responsibility. The firstborn son is going to care for his parents in their old age. That goes along with it. And also, he would have to care for any unmarried sisters. So the extra wealth, with that comes some responsibility. He's going to have to step up and lead the family. That's what the firstborn does. He steps up along with that gift. But on top of that, on top of the family obligations and, and the inheritance of wealth, there's a spiritual inheritance that goes along with being the firstborn son. It's a spiritual inheritance. That means that the firstborn son literally receives a, a blessing from God that the other siblings do not receive. And it is just that. It, it is a blessing and a gift. It means that in the larger scheme of what God is doing in that family, that firstborn son is going to receive a kind of priority and prominence. This is like hitting the spiritual jackpot. It's winning the genetic lottery. To be the firstborn son is to get extra authority, extra responsibility, but prominence, spiritual prominence. God is going to do something amazing in this family, and he's going to do it through the firstborn. That's what the birthright is. Do you understand that? Because I'm not sure Esau understands that. His birthright is a tremendous blessing. It says everything about his future and what God is going to do and the way his life is going to turn. That birthright is everything for this guy's future, this boy's future. But what does he do with his birthright? He trades it for what? A bowl of stew. A bowl of stew. He traded all of that for a bowl of stew. Let's stop right there. Would you do that? Would you trade your future? Would you trade the best part of what God wants to do, not just in your life, but in your family's life for generations? Would you trade that? 
Would you trade the inheritance of wealth and the inheritance of spiritual prominence? Would you trade that for a bowl of Dennymore beef stew? Would you do that? If it were the right bowl of stew. Are you with me? I'm thinking you'd do it. If it were the right bowl of stew. Esau comes in, the scripture says, comes in, he's hungry. He's been out hunting, who knows how long. He's been in his deer stand for two weeks and he's starving to death. He's been living off of beanie weenies and beef jerky and he's starving to death now. And so he comes home. And I told you, Jacob stays at home. He's always at home and he cooks like mama. He, he loves Paula Dean. He's in there cooking some red stew. That's just what Jacob does. He hasn't necessarily laid a trap for his brother. This is just what he does. But he does see an opportunity Esau comes in and says, what's that smell? Well, what's cooking? I'm starving to death. Give me a bowl of that stew. That's all he asks for because it's all he's thinking about. He's hungry. He's hungry. Now freeze frame right there. Remember the first scripture we read this morning was from the book of James. We want to talk about temptation and how temptation works. So stop right there. Go back to James with me. Where does sin begin? Where does temptation begin? With desire. Exactly. We are tempted when by our own desires, our desire, we are led away, we are enticed. So notice how this story begins to turn. It, it comes upon the very fact of Esau's appetite, his desire, his desire. And notice what he says, I'm starving to death. Now, is he starving to death? No. No, Esau could live off of body fat alone for several more weeks. I'm telling you, he is not starving to death. But this is how desire operates. And this is how you and I, we get led into sin. It all starts with desire. And then our brains go to work. We talked the other Sunday night about the way we inherit a, a sinful nature from our father, Adam. And indeed, all of us have that sinful nature. That's why you don't need the devil's help to sin. You can do it all by yourself. It goes back to that sinful nature. And that sin nature affects the way your body works. And it affects the way your mind works. And I want you to stop with me a moment and think about your brain and your brain in temptation and how it works. Scientists actually talk about two different things. I want you to learn two, two technical terms today for, for the way your brain works because it affects the way you'll think about sin from now on. The first thing I want you to think about is something scientists call impact bias. Impact bias. This is a, a tendency of all human brains. And impact bias is the tendency to overestimate the duration and intensity a future feeling. Okay, impact bias. Our brain has a tendency to overestimate the duration and intensity of future feeling. Now, how does this work in temptation? What this means is when I have a desire, my brain starts giving me ideas. And my brain will always overestimate future feelings. So this is what it means. Let's say that I'm struggling with the temptation. My brain will tell me that if I say yes, if I give in to this desire, that it's going to satisfy me at about an eight or nine. Do you understand? Your brain tells you if you just do this, if you just say yes, if you just give in, it is going to feel so good. It's going to be like an eight or a nine. But in reality, whatever you choose to do, it's only going to satisfy you at about a two. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
Your brain always tells you this is going to be the best thing ever. You ever been on a diet and you're trying to be so good and you're not going to eat the Twinkie, not going to eat the Twinkie. Then all of a sudden, all you can think about is Twinkie. All you see, all you can think about is Twinkie. This is the second thing I want you to know about your brain. It's called focalism. Focalism. It is your brain's tendency to focus on one thing and block everything else out. And in your moments of temptation, this is what your brain does. You become obsessed. You focus on that one thing, that forbidden thing. You're focused on it, and it becomes all you think about. And this is why you are a sitting duck for for temptation. Now everything else is blocked out, and you're focused, focused, over-focused on that one thing. Everything else blocked out, and your brain's lying to you. Your brain says, if you just do this, if you take that, if you eat that Twinkie, you're going to feel so good. It's going to satisfy you like an eight or a nine. You eat this Twinkie, you probably won't want any more sweets till March or April. Just eat that Twinkie. It's going to be eight or nine, baby, and what happens when you eat it? It's gone before you know it. It's gone. You swallow it whole like an aspirin, and then What? I want more. I want more. And before you know it, you've eaten a whole box of Twinkies and a jar of mayonnaise to wash it down. Do you understand? That's how sin works. That's how desire works. Now, our desires are created by God. God created us with these appetites, but sin has distorted our appetites. And that is why now our desires, our human desires, will lead us into sin. And that is why your mind, your thoughts will work against you, always work against you. Temptation will promise you that if you just give in, if you just say yes, you're going to be satisfied like an eight or a nine, baby, maybe a ten. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you the truth, it will always, always be more like a two. Never going to deliver what it promises. It's never going to be what it seems. And yet your brain focuses on it, focuses, and it's all you can think about. So Esau walks in, and he smells stew. He smells stew. And this is how it starts, by smelling the soup. Smells it, says, what's cooking? Jacob says, it's bean soup, beans and cornbread. And Esau says, i got to have some. I'm starving to death. I'm starving to death. Make me a bowl. Jacob says, well, make me a deal. I'll give you a bowl of soup. You give me your birthright. Now, that's huge. This is the, the dumbest deal ever made. Do you understand? I mean, he could have let Jacob drive his truck maybe. I mean, anything else. But Jacob goes right for what's most valuable. And indeed, it's Esau's whole future. His whole future. Trade me your whole future. Trade me the double inheritance from our father. Trade me the responsibility and authority of the firstborn. Trade me all of the spiritual benefits that go with the prominence of the firstborn. Trade me that. I'll give you a cup of stew. What does Esau say? What good's a birthright to me if I starve to death and die? Do you understand? That's his brain working, his brain lying to him. All he can think about is the stew. He's not thinking about what he's trading. He's not thinking about that. Wouldn't it be something if somehow we could drop into that story at that moment, if we could drop into that story and say something to Esau, what would you say? 
I would love to drop into that story and say, Esau, you've got to listen to me. Before you do anything else, think this over. Because in the future, God's people are going to be enslaved. And God's going to raise up a deliverer. And you don't know this yet, Esau. But that man's name will be Moses. And he is going to stand trembling and barefoot before a burning bush one day. And God's going to speak to him out of that bush. And when God speaks, God's going to say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. God's going to say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. Esau, are you listening to me? Centuries in the future, Esau. Please listen, Esau. Centuries in the future, a guy named Matthew is going to write the gospel. He's going to write the story of the Messiah, the Savior of the whole world. And he's going to start the whole story by tracing the line of blessing through families. And when he starts that genealogy, when he starts that record of where God's salvation comes from, he's going to say Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of of Esau. Esau, do you understand what you're trading? He doesn't. Of course he doesn't. He doesn't see. And you're not seeing either. This is my passion and burden as your pastor. I'm afraid you don't see this. Because whether you really like to think about it or not, you're just like Esau. It works in your life in the same way it worked in his life. You're tempted. You're tempted when your desires draw you away. And in that moment of temptation, your sinful brain, it locks down on that thing that it wants, that thing that's forbidden. And that becomes all you can think about. And you begin to fantasize and dream about this one thing. And you begin to think that somehow, if you'll just say yes, that that, that somehow you'll be very, very satisfied. That somehow it's going to finally and fully satisfy your desire, but it won't. You don't understand what you're trading. We never understand what we trade for a bowl of stew in temptation. We never seem to think it through. We never think it over. You don't understand, sir. You don't understand. Right now, it just seems like a little bit of internet pornography. It just seems like to you, when nobody's around, you can log on and look at whatever you want. And you despise yourself when you're finished. You can't stand that dirty feeling of saying yes when you should have said no. You can't stand that. But every single time, your desire draws you back. It draws you right back. And it tells you that you're going to be satisfied. Today you're going to look and you're going to be satisfied to an eight or nine. But it's never any more than a two. Don't you understand that? You're never satisfied. It's never as good as it promises. It never turns out that way. But your brain focuses. And you're not thinking. You're not thinking about in the future the day that your son opens up your laptop and begins to see what daddy looks at. You're not thinking this through. You're not thinking about the day when your wife becomes completely disgusted at the man you've become. You're not thinking about the day when your daughter gets married and some other man gives her away. You're not thinking about what you can lose here. You're not thinking this through. You're not thinking. That that moment in the conversation when you realize you've got a juicy bit of gossip to share. 
and it's just so good. And you know that you're not supposed to gossip. You know it's a sin, and you hate when other people talk about other people. But I'm telling you, it's, it's like something so sweet in your mouth, and you're just dying to say it. You just can't help saying it. And so you just say it, you just blurt it out, you you begin to gossip, and it feels good because you thought that by just saying what you knew about the other person, it would make you seem like you know things, or it would make you funny. Other people would laugh, and, and you would somehow get satisfaction, but it's never as satisfying. That's why the gossip becomes simply a way of life for you. Don't you understand? Can you not play it forward? You continue this pattern, you let the sin continue to grow inside of you, don't you understand? You become the woman, you become the person with no friends because you've gossiped about everybody. Don't you understand? We all know that anybody that gossips to us will also gossip about us. You're going to be so alone, friendless. You can't play this forward, you can't think this through. Temptation's tricky. Because it always plays upon our desire, that thing that you want, that thing that you love. And it promises so much. It promises satisfaction to an eight or a nine. It never, ever delivers. What's that smell? Esau says, I smell something good. Jacob says, you can have something good if you, if you trade me your birthright. So it says, what good's a birthright to me? What good is a birthright to me if I die of starvation? Jacob pours him a bowl of soup. Esau eats it and throws his future away. He throws it all away. My question for you today, what are you about to throw away for a bowl of stew? What are you about to throw away for something as temporary as a bowl of stew? Think it over with me, please. Think, what is it right now in your life that you know you should say no to, but you're about to say yes to? What is it in your life that you know you need to say no to, but you're very, very close, you're contemplating saying yes? What is that thing in your life that you're about to trade all the good things in your future for. Think it through. What is it right now in your life that that you're contemplating doing, or maybe you're already doing it, but what is it in your life that if it were exposed, you would have a really hard time explaining it to your parents? If it were exposed, if somehow people began to find out what you're thinking, what is it that you would have a really hard time explaining to your spouse or the people who love you at church or your children? You need to think this through because there's something you don't see. You don't see what God sees when he looks at your future. You don't understand what God wants to do, not just through you, but through your children and through your grandchildren. You don't see that far, but God sees that far. And this is what is at stake here, my friend. This is what is at stake for you. It's not just your life you throw away. Don't you understand? Don't you understand? You sleep with this guy because you think somehow that'll make him want you. You think that'll satisfy you. You end up pregnant. He ends up gone. And then you end up having a little girl. And then somewhere down the road, your daughter repeats the very same thing. And you end up taking care of your grandchildren when you should be somehow doing something else. You understand how this works? It's not just your life at stake. This goes through generations. Generations at stake. You don't see that, but God sees that. And you've got to think this through. 
You've got to understand that there's so much more at stake. And at the moment, it just seems like a bowl of stew. It seems like something so small and so harmless that you'll just eat through this and then you'll be gone. You'll go on with your life. But you don't understand, you may trade your life for something like a bowl of stew. You don't see the future. You don't understand what God wants to do with you, how God wants to bless you. You don't understand how down the road God wants you in a place where he can do something so beautiful, so magnificent in your life, in the life of your family for generations. You don't see that now. But I know that you want to be there one day. You want to be there when God does what he's promised to do. You want to be there. So do not throw it away. Don't trade that. What are you about to throw away for a bowl of stew? Pray with me. God, I pray right now for that person in this room or in the sound of my voice. And this is their last warning. This is their last chance. This is the word from God which says, turn around now. God, I pray that that person comes clean today. I pray that that person today says no when they ought to say no, Lord. I pray that that person today, Lord, will turn away from sin. Lord, I pray that that person today will find the grace and the strength to turn back now before it is too late, before too much has been thrown away. God, I pray that we would heed the wisdom of Scripture and learn the lessons from Esau. Lord, I pray that we would learn to see something of what you see when you look at our lives, Lord. We don't see the plan. We don't understand how good you've planned it for us. We don't understand the blessings down the road for us. If only today we will learn to control our desires. Oh God, make us to see that our whole life depends upon our ability, the grace you give us to master our appetites, to control our desires, to say no to ourselves. Lord Jesus, today I pray for this congregation. I pray for our families. I pray for every one of us, Lord, weak and tempted as we are, that we could be strong and victorious through you in our lives. Lord Jesus, there are teenagers in this room today who could throw away their whole lives, and they don't understand that. There are men in this room, Lord, living like little boys, saying no to nothing that they want, thinking, Lord, that the whole life is about simply fulfilling their desires. Lord, I pray that you'd make them grow up and stop them in their tracks. Lord, women who have not understood the importance of controlling their desires and living a life of purity and beauty and grace through you, oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. There's so much at stake in our lives. You have created us not for sin, but for holiness. We give ourselves to sin. Lord Jesus, today, fall down heavy upon us in this house. Fall down heavy upon our hearts. Help us, Lord, to see, to see and to think it through. Say no to our desires. Say yes, Lord, to the future you have for us. Yes, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together. It's time to respond.